Welcome back to the Longevity Now podcast, a place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. The Sentence Foundation has been around a long time, and we periodically check in with Aubrey de Grey, one of the co-founders of the Sentence Foundation. It's been a couple of decades now of struggle and success, and now it's time to find out how things are going lately. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, Aubrey de Grey of the Sens Foundation. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Aubrey. Well, as always, thank you for having me. Well, let's start out with the long view. You know, I've known you for a long time now, and I know you've been at the, the rejuvenation research for almost, I mean, two decades. If you could describe what it feels like to go through the struggle and the successes over the last nearly 20 years, can you encapsulate that for the listeners? Yeah, well, to me, it's never really felt like a struggle. And the reason it hasn't is basically because of people like you. Even you know, ever since I started coming up with the ideas that have now gone so far, I've had a lot of moral support and you know, actual support, including even financial support, um, from you know a lot of people uh, but especially the moral support you know from people who really get the idea that aging is a bad thing that we ought to fix and we, and we should be able to fix that has been really important it has meant that i have never had a problem of any kind of self-doubt you know anything like that and so you know i always say this but it's really true that the people I look up to the most are the foot soldiers, the people who are just as hardworking as me, just as committed to the mission, but they don't get any of that adulation. You know, people don't come up to them in the street and congratulate them on what they're doing, right? So yeah, I mean, for me, it's never really been a struggle. Now, on the other hand, certainly it, there have been frustrations. It's been much harder until very recently anyway to get money in the door to actually fund the necessary science that needs to be done. And of course, also, it's been very painful coping with the main reason why it's difficult to get money, namely the what I always call the pro-aging trance, the determination of people to kind of put aging out of their minds by pretending and tricking themselves into thinking that it's a blessing in disguise of some kind. That is something which has still not shifted very much. You know, even though the science has shifted enormously and indeed the investment community has now emerged and grown exponentially over the past few years, there is still, it's still very, very difficult to talk to most people in the, uh, in the wider world about this. All right. Uh, how about the Undoing Aging Conference that recently was held in Berlin? From all reports I've read, it was a smashing success. What did you learn about the state of rejuvenation research while at the conference? Well, I never learn very much at these conferences because I'm always running around like a complete headless chicken. I never see very many of the talks. But uh, yeah, it was a smashing success. Yeah, second- even if you didn't get in on a lot of the scientific presentations, you were there and kind of got a feel for the sense of the state of rejuvenation research, maybe uh, just socially speaking uh, instead of scientifically speaking. I mean, any of that. Let me summarize that. So, So basically... There are certain things that can really um, encapsulate how well things are going. The first one is a very simple one, the sheer number of people that were there. And, you know, I definitely don't want to say that this is just because of um, you know, the time being right, but I think that's certainly part of it. More and more people are genuinely realizing that this is something they need to be involved in. 
the other big feature was the enormously efficient and you know hard work of the German local organizers. So as many people will know, Undoing Aging is essentially bankrolled by Forever Healthy Foundation, which is a German nonprofit set up by a guy named Michael Grieve, or strictly speaking, Michael Greve, who made his money in the early days of the internet in Germany, web.de and so on. And he's a very committed supporter. He gives us a million dollars a year for our research. He also, through his venture fund, he invests quite heavily in a number of the companies that are involved in this space, including some of the spin-outs from from Tent Research Foundation. But in addition to all that, um, you know, nearly two years ago now, he came along and said, hey, you know, it'd be nice to run a conference. And it turned out that his vision of what kind of conference to run was pretty much identical to the format that I had used in Cambridge starting in 2003. So I was overjoyed. The only thing that's missing is the punting. Yeah. So uh, furthermore, he's committed to running it every year, whereas Cambridge conferences were only every two years. So yeah, I mean, it's a smashing success. And this year, it's sold out. We actually had literally 500 people registered, I mean, including the speakers, which is like twice the size that the Cambridge conferences ever were. And that is a real message. They're looking at they're going to have they're, they're getting a bigger venue next year. We don't even know whether it's going to be big enough. It's going to have, be able to take 700. It may not be big enough. Okay. Yeah, and you mentioned the previous SENS uh, conferences that were held in Cambridge, of which one I did attend. And I, I was very uh, filled with enthusiasm and optimism after seeing all of the researchers present there. And perhaps it's due to the slow nature of medical progress. But, you know, here we are 10 years later. And a lot of people are continuing to give research results. And there's a lot of optimism, of course, at the Ending Aging Conference in Berlin there. Is there something qualitatively different now as compared to 10 years ago? I, I mean, are, can you sense that we are certainly a lot closer on some of the rejuvenation therapies? Um, that depends how you measure it. So in the, at the coalface, so to speak, in terms of what research is presented and how I view the research, I wouldn't say the difference is qualitative. It's like continuing step by step. Every step is small. There are, you know, there are step. The, the, the big thing for me is that there are significant steps in every area, even the most difficult areas. So, for example, five years ago, we could not really have said that we had made significant progress on mitosense, putting the mitochondrial genome in the nucleus, whereas now it's gangbusters. Similarly for extracellular cross-linking, the, um, the restoration of elasticity in the major arteries and such like. That's an area which we started funding maybe six or seven years ago at Yale University. And it wasn't, it wasn't until about four years ago that there was a really big breakthrough that showed that this was actually going to be feasible. Now, again, that's going really fast. I guess you could count that as qualitative. But to me, the most you know, dramatic step change that's occurred is in the consequences of the research. And I want to say that in two ways. First of all, in terms of the actual impact on healthy life in the lab, in model organisms, especially mice, and secondly, in the enthusiasm that has arisen from that among private investors. I mean, of course, still, we're talking mostly about really angel and seed investors, people who are, are comfortable with high risk, high reward investments. But that's fine. There seem to be quite a lot of those people, um, certainly now. 
and you know literally every week people are coming along and you know they have they've been that kind of investor in other sectors and they don't know where to start and they come to me so there were a lot of those people that are undoing aging people and i basically you know at the previous undoing aging just one year ago one year previously if someone would ask me to introduce them to somebody else i would say yes and within the next like few hours i would actually see both of them in the same room at the same time and be able to actually do that this year after about one day of the meeting, I just stopped doing that because I was completely unable to keep up. So basically, the yeah, the impact. I want to talk about the impact a little bit more in, in, in the lab. This is a big thing that has been a huge, big surprise, good surprise for me. Historically, of course, I've always been talking about divide and conquer strategy, about dividing aging into these various types of damage and addressing each of them individually. And I've always said that we have to address all of them somewhat, you know, quite well. We don't have to address any of them perfectly in order to get to longevity, escape velocity, but we definitely do have to address all of them reasonably well. But how well is influenced by crosstalk? In other words, by the extent to which the accumulation of one type of damage would be slowed down by the elimination of another type of damage, right? Now, I always thought that there wouldn't be much crosstalk, with the possible exception of mitochondrial mutations, whose mechanism of action in terms of contributing to age-related problems is still rather unclear, but it's probably very pervasive, very systemic. So I was kind of thinking, even for 20 years ago, that probably if we fixed then we'd see a significant slowdown in the rate of accumulation of other types of damage. But for all the others, I thought, no, there's going to be only a little bit of crosstalk. And the big thing we've found out over the past couple of years is that the elimination of senescent cells is really big in terms of crosstalk. It has, you know, ridiculously wide-ranging beneficial effects in the laboratory. So, you know, this may, this may end up applying to other ones that we can't yet fix as well as we can fix or at least you know model the fixing of as uh, we can with senescent cells and that's the main reason why i've become a little bit more optimistic about time frames started talking about time frames in terms of the 50 percent chance of getting to longevity escape velocity but maybe 15 years ago and back then i said 25 years and like a couple of years ago i was saying 20 years which means that i was definitely over optimistic now, the good news is I was only over-optimistic about the funding, not about act the actual science. Uh, so that's good. But the point is now it's gone down by another two years, my official estimate, in two years. So we are actually, you know, not slipping anymore. Well, one thing you mentioned there about the senescent cells and the wide-ranging effects uh, toward uh, slowing aging, uh, reducing the effects of aging. I wanted to know as well about some of these that are taking off the mitosens uh, and the extracellular crosslinks and things like that in senescent cells. Now, if we implement these therapies, which with the senescent cells, uh, I mean, that's coming up very quickly here. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you anticipate or does anyone at the SENS Foundation or has anyone researched whether or not we will have to stimulate rejuvenation metabolism in the body once the damage is removed? Uh, do you think that that is something that will need to be done? Like you remove the senescent cells, then will stem cells just all of a sudden reactivate and start populating those areas that uh, senescent cells used to populate? There's no one answer to that. It's going to be different in different tissues. And we can't even at this point predict which tissues it's going to be more uh, difficult in. You know, some tissues inherently have more regenerative capacity 
that regenerative capacity maybe declines during aging, maybe it will recover spontaneously as a result of the elimination of the senescent cells. In fact, a lot of people are saying that maybe that's part of why the impact of removing senescent cells is, is so widespread. But in other tissues, we may need to actually also do stem cell therapy because the crosstalk is not sufficient, if you like. Yeah, so I don't think we can, we can say one way or the other. These are the things we're going to be finding out. And of course, not only in the lab, but also in the clinic. We're now at the point where Unity, uh, the leading senescent cell company, is actually doing clinical trials. They're starting out just in osteoporosis because, no, sorry, osteoarthritis, because they are, um, they want to do something which has a nice, you know, insurance against any kind of safety issues. You know, if you're basically just injecting stuff into the knee, then it doesn't really go systemic. So that kind of is a good place to start. But they'll be doing other trials in other conditions associated with aging over the next year. And we'll get new data on that question that you asked, as well as many other questions, very quickly now. Okay, earlier you mentioned uh, about funding, and uh, I know SENS has uh, been uh, recipients of some pretty good uh, uh, grants over the last couple of years, and it seems like more money than ever is flowing into the rejuvenation therapies. Is that fair to say? It's the most that it you've is. ever seen uh, come it into is. the scene? It is. It is fair, but, but it's unevenly distributed. Mm -hmm. So we have seen a vast increase in the amount of money going into startup companies. And of course, we ourselves have spun out half a dozen such projects into companies that have, that have done very well. Uh, and probably our poster child would be Icor Therapeutics, um, founded by Kelsey Moody, who used to work for us for several years, of course. And they've now got a staff of 50 people. They've been able to bring in a lot of money. And the other companies are at an earlier stage, but they're still you know, doing pretty well. The foundation, on the other hand, you're quite right to mention that we did have a nice windfall 18 months ago when there was that huge spike in cryptocurrencies. Um, we had four seven-digit donations adding up to a total of $6.5 million. But we knew right then that this was a windfall and that it wasn't necessarily going to be repeated. In particular, we knew perfectly well that a couple of the uh, donors were basically just giving away most of what they had gained. Uh, so they were not, not going to be in a position to do it again. The biggest donor at that point, who gave us two and a half million dollars, was Vitalik Buterin. And he very generously gave us another donation a year later, in other words, the end of 2018, which was not quite the same size, but 60% of the, the first donation in Ethereum coin terms. But of course, that meant that it was only about 15% of the amount in dollar terms, which is what matters in, in the long run. And I don't think we're going to have a real windfall again unless and until there is another big crypto spike. But saying that, you know, there's a lot of people who made plenty of money out of crypto and who have not yet come on board. And we're very happy that we have an enormous amount of support in that whole blockchain community. Um, you know, so I get invited to a lot of conferences in which you know, the conferences are blockchain conferences. And I am the only person there who's not talking about blockchain. But, you know, they really want me. So so that shows you that um, there's a chance of, of more. It, it, however, if we add all this together, the thing about the explosion of the private sector side is that a lot of the really wealthy visionaries in this area are fundamentally, they, they got that way by investing. And they, are, they like that kind of thing. They're not really philanthropically minded. So now that they have the opportunity to make a significant contribution to the mission in a way that they are comfortable with, namely investing, even if it's a very visionary investment, you know, that, if anything, makes them less willing to be philanthropic as well. And there are exceptions. Vitalik is certainly one exception. He hasn't, as far as I know, he hasn't been investing at all. He's only been donating to us. 
and Michael Graeber, uh, who runs the Undoing Aging Conference, has been roughly splitting his funding of all of this 50-50 between us and actual investments. Most of these people are putting 95% or more of that money into the investment side. So we do still have a funding problem. Well, uh, now I want uh, two more questions for you. Uh, and one is something interesting that you mentioned the last time we spoke about the long-term evolution of the SENS Foundation. And you mentioned that, hey, our goal is to spin out companies and just to seed the rejuvenation landscape and uh, let everyone else take it from there. And, you know, it really seems like uh, things are going in that direction. Do you still foresee kind of a, a time in the somewhat distant future where, where you just kind of wipe your hands and say, hey, we did our job. Look at this. Every send strand is funded and we've got companies galore. And there you go. <laughs> Mission accomplished. I pretty much do think that that might be what happens. But let me qualify it a little bit. Sure. First of all, I'm definitely not putting a time frame on it. No. The <laughs> um, list of things that we would like to fund is still quite long. Uh, and these are things, of course, that are at the early stage where they're not investable. Now, things become investable without our help sometimes. So, for example, what happened a year ago when we had this windfall was we had a list and we went down the list. And actually, the first three things that we had intended to fund when we could, we didn't need to because they ended up being funded privately. But we didn't have, our list was much longer than three, so that didn't slow us down, so that was good. But the other thing I wanna say that's very important here is that I think this business of getting to a point where we can fundamentally declare victory only applies to the research aspect of our activity. We also, of course, do a huge amount of outreach and advocacy, and we're gonna carry on doing that in collaboration with other groups like LEAF, for example, you know, and my personal role, of course, as a public figure in this in this field is, is going to continue for the foreseeable future to be quite important in, in those senses. Um, and the other thing that we do, which is an extremely important aspect of our activities, is the education initiative, which started out actually under Kelsey Moody's tutelage as a pretty much zero expense uh, mentoring thing where we, we kind of trained people to to write stuff, to do liter literature reviews and stuff. And some of those were really good, but the point is it was just really for fun, more, more or less. But what it's turned into over the past five or six years under the leadership of our director of education, Greg Chin, is a an extraordinarily prestigious internship program where we bring in undergraduates like for two or three months, we have a couple of them typically in our own lab. We place others in other labs that we're working with in one way or another. And when I say it's extraordinarily prestigious, what I mean is by comparison with other internship programs across the board in any other topic. So there's loads and loads of those around the country. And we are among the most competitive. We literally can only fund 2% of the applications we get. So it's 50-fold oversubscribed. And, of course, that means that we could totally you know, add an entire digit to our budget for the education initiative and take that 2% up to 20%, and we would have pretty much zero loss of, well, you know, compromise of quality. And I believe that that is, if anything, the single most severely underfunded aspect of what we do right now. The training and you know, mentorship of youngsters in this field is going to play an insanely large role in the future in hastening the work that still needs to be done and will need to be done for the next decade or two. 
So, you know, the more we can grow this program, the better. And if anyone's listening who's thinking about giving us money or thinking about putting money into this field in general and doesn't mind it being philanthropic, then I would say talk to me about the education initiative. All right. uh, Last question here. Something that a lot of people wonder about. And I know we've talked about it a couple of times in the past. Uh, there's a lot of uh, new um, kind of uh, on the edge therapies and nutritional supplements and things uh, that I'm sure you're well aware of that are popular in the biohacker community out there. People who just can't wait for a clinical trial. Uh, and people always wonder, do you avail yourself of, you know, uh, anything that uh, it slows aging or you know, has so-called rejuvenation properties, uh, any type of lifestyle or supplement Uh, regimes? You know, I'm not doing anything yet. I'm definitely paying close attention to my health. There are any early warning signs of anything going slightly wrong, but I'm only 55, well, 56 years old now, I guess, as of two weeks ago. And I, um, you know, I'm a very young 56 year old. Every time that I've been given the benefit of really high end tests of my biological age of one kind or another, I have come out far younger than my actual chronological age. So for me, it's still a case of biding my time. I have to be quite concerned. The rational thing for me to do as someone who's unusually slow aging is to be quite conservative about getting into each of these things. Okay. Well, always a pleasure, Aubrey. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's my pleasure too. In closing, I'd like to second what Aubrey said earlier in the podcast. Thanks to all of you out there who have been advocates from the sidelines, from the shadows. It's all of our collective action that has led to great success lately in rejuvenation research. Keep up the good work. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.